This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ruben Neuenheis. Today I'm speaking with Professor Robert J. Dostel about his book, Gadamer's Hermeneutics, Between Phenomenology and Dialectic. In Gadamer's Hermeneutics, Dostel provides a comprehensive and critical account of Hans-Georg Gadamer's hermeneutical philosophy, arguing that Gadamer's enterprise is rooted in the thesis that being that can be understood is language. He defends Gadamer against charges of linguistic idealism and emphasizes language's relationship to understanding, though he criticizes Gadamer for too often ignoring the role of the prelinguistic in our experience. Dostel goes on to explain the concept of the inner word for Gadamer's account of language. The book situates Gadamer's hermeneutics in three important ways, in relation to the contestability of the legacy of the Enlightenment project, in relation to the work of his mentor, Martin Heidegger, and in relation to Gadamer's readings of Plato and Aristotle. Robert J. Dostel is the Rufus M. Jones Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Bryn Mawr College. He is the editor to the Cambridge Companion to Gadamer. Robert Dostel, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, well, hello. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah. Well, can you briefly introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about your academic interests? Sure. I'm a recently retired philosophy professor from Bryn Mawr College. Uh, Bryn Mawr is a small liberal arts college exclusively for women. I've taught there for uh, a little over 40 years. Um, my teaching has included the entire history of philosophy, uh, ethics, environmental ethics. Uh, I've also taught upper level seminars on Kant and Gadamer and Heidegger. Uh, my research has focused on the modern and contemporary German tradition, and I've published a number of articles on uh, Heidegger and Gadamer, Kant, uh, and, and other figures. Uh, I also have a particular interest in Plato and Aristotle, though I don't claim to be a great scholar. Uh, in Greek philosophy. Yeah, well, you start off the book in a way that I think uh, sets a helpful context. You start with the Enlightenment and considering where Gadamer's stances fit in relation to this. While you point out he has theoretical and practical critiques of the Enlightenment, you also point out that he considered himself in some regards to be a thinker in this tradition. Can you walk us through what are Gadamer's main critiques of and agreements with Enlightenment ideas? Okay. Uh, 
his primary objection to Enlightenment thought is that it's too subjectivistic. And he thinks that subjectivism is at the root of both its theoretical approaches to knowledge and its practical approaches to questions in ethics and politics. Uh, So theoretically, at the core of uh, what he finds to be problematic, theoretically, uh, is what we might call representationalism. Uh, Representationalism is the view that, in fact, we do not have direct contact with things. What we have direct contact with are our ideas about things. Uh, This representationalism pervades both the sort of continental side, but also the Anglo-American side of things or the English side of things. And it culminates in Kant, who, as is well known, argues that we do not know things as they are in themselves. We only know the appearances of things. So for Kant, uh, who defends science, uh, modern science is gives us knowledge of appearances, but not things in themselves. So there are a number of things that accompany this uh, view of representationalism, and they include, I, I won't go into detail here, they include an instrumental view of language, that language is to be understood primarily as a tool for communication. Gadamer objects to this. Uh, Enlightenment thought rejects tradition and is fascinated with the new and likes to make a claim on progress. And this goes hand in hand with Gadamer's rejection of the notion that we can put ourselves in a position uh, with no prejudice. Uh, Also, the Enlightenment theoretical tradition relies heavily on method, finding the right methods. And it culminates in a kind of scientism whereby the only access to truth and the only truths available are those provided us by science. Uh, So that's a quick summary of the theoretical objections. Practically, uh, and by the word practical, in the German tradition and the way Kadamer uses the term, he means ethical, the ethics and politics of things. Uh, Gadamer uh, rejects the Enlightenment uh, way of demoting the virtue of prudence. Uh, prudence doesn't play a large role, and in fact, the hearers of this podcast um, um, may not uh, frequently think about prudence. We, it might also be called practical judgment. Uh, This was the central, so to speak, Greek virtue in Greek phronesis or phronesis. And what what modern thought, Enlightenment thought did is replace an ethics of practical judgment with an ethics of rules or laws. And we find this also in Kant who gives us a rule-governed ethic that originates in the self. It doesn't come from outside, from the lawgiver or from God, nor does it come from nature. It comes from the self. Uh, Together with this demotion of uh, 
practical judgment comes a demotion of authority. So one is to think for oneself and not accept things on authority. Uh, Gadamer argues that uh, there are you know, limits to how much we should rely on authority, but inevitably we must rely on authorities. And then uh, also, Gadamer would revive the tradition of rhetoric that has roots in the Greeks, and he finds enlightenment thought rejecting rhetoric. We should simply be giving scientific proofs for what we want to know and believe, and uh, rhetoric should be, so to speak, tossed out. Uh, that having been said, uh, and, and to say this rather succinctly, Gadamer agrees and embraces the two great accomplishments of the Enlightenment, and those are modern science and democracy. And uh, the, the, in conjunction with democracy, the notions that every person deserves respect, human rights, and all of that. Um, and uh, so Gadamer endorses and embraces that. Great. Yeah, I think, yeah, that was really helpful. Um, well, my next question is about Gadamer's political stance. While many may consider Gadamer to be politically conservative, you do make a clarification that you don't see him following in Heidegger's footsteps in this regard, largely due to Gadamer's humanism. I know you mentioned that Gadamer didn't write extensively about his political views, but could you maybe talk a little bit, bit about what is known? And um, I know solidarity is one of those items. Concepts. Yeah, if we, if we want to talk about Gadamer's politics, I think there are two aspects that often come up. The one simply concerns Gadamer's own political activity or, or inactivity. Uh, the concern for this aspect pops up uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Gadamer was able to uh, achieve a full professorship uh, during the Nazi period. And for many, uh, this simply proves his uh, complicity with or perhaps even agreement with the Nazis. Uh, so there's the question about his own political activities. Uh, the other aspect, though, and the, more to your question, has to do with uh, Gadamer's own political theory uh, uh, in as much as he wrote uh, whatever might be relevant to political theory. Let me say just a word about the, f the, the first. Uh, in my book, I defend Gadamer a bit. Gadamer doesn't claim to be a hero. Um, Gadamer got along, so to speak, with the Nazis uh, enough to get a, a promoted to full professor. However, when the war was over, the Russians and the local Marxists, who then had authority in East Germany, where Gadamer was, they appointed Gadamer head of Leipzig University because his, they saw his record to be clean and that he uh, wasn't involved with uh, Nazism. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more to be said there. There are writers who have criticized uh, Gadamer's uh, own political involvements. But the, your question really goes to uh, what kind of politics are implicit in his philosophy. Uh, and as you've mentioned, Gadamer uh, doesn't write very much that's explicitly political, uh, but he does put solidarity uh, 
at the at the center of his thought and uh, argues that solidarity is the basis for any good politics. Uh, to make some sense of this, I would simply suggest that Gadamer here is a good Aristotelian who argues that civic friendship uh, is the basis for the establishment of good politics and the city, and that Aristotle's notion of civic friendship, that isn't necessarily our close friends and family, but our associations with others that we find ourselves living with in community, uh, Hegel takes up this notion of civic friendship from Aristotle and develops it into his more extended notion of a civil society uh, and the importance of civil society for any good politics. Uh, so uh, all of this is uh, uh, implicit. Some of it uh, mentioned, that is the notion of having solidarity with with others as important for politics. I should also add that Aristotle makes fundamental uh, any good politics should serve the common good. And uh, one can't sort of work together for the common good unless we find a kind of bond with others. That bond is solidarity. Um, So uh, Gadamer is arguing uh, for solidarity as fundamental to politics. And whereas hermeneutics comes into play in this regard, is he sees the basis for finding our solidarity with others is conversation and dialogue. So we find again and again his work turning to the concepts of conversation. Right, yeah. And I know at one point you mentioned that um, he he talks that um, the aim of all conversation is agreement, I think. So, um, yes. Though um, many of our conversations don't end in agreement. Right, yeah. That's that's where we're headed. Uh, yeah, mm. he's not a Pollyanna that thinks everybody can uh, agree and everybody can necessarily get along, but that's what we're striving for. Right. Uh, I want to ask a question about Gadamer's aesthetics. Uh, he wrote a lot on this matter and sees it as a related topic to his hermeneutics. You point out that one of his controversial claims is that art and aesthetic experience are an experience of truth because they disclose or reveal something. And crucial to this is that pictures are not mere copies or imitations. Not represented nor represented, the picture makes the very thing pictured present to the viewer. Can you unpack this for us and talk about why this is so important for Gadamer? Yeah, this is very closely related to what I spoke about uh, at the beginning of our conversation, that is, uh, the way in which most modern Enlightenment thinking is representationalist. So uh, art is often thought of, the artwork is often thought of as a picturing something, and, uh, and that picturing is thought of as a kind of imitation and then we, to judge something, we have to sort of see, you know, whether it's a, a good representation of something else. Uh, however, if you uh, explore 
of the way that this modern aesthetics developed, it ends up with the view of art for art's own sake. And it ends up arguing that art doesn't really have anything to do with truth. Uh, it simply is to present us with something that we might think of as uh, beautiful or uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, and so on. In any case, Gadamer argues that the artwork, uh, as you've already mentioned, doesn't simply represent something, but it presents that thing to us. And so uh, if we think of it as presenting the thing, uh, we can uh, understand the artwork to be revealing some truth about the thing to us. Uh, so that the truth value of art is very important for Gadamer's thought, and it's quite unusual in the context of modern aesthetics. Now, questions will be raised uh, immediately. Uh, what about music or architecture or abstract art? They are not representative in the standard way of thinking, and how are they uh, sort of somehow telling us a truth about the world. Gadamer hasn't written extensively about it, but Gadamer has written about this very uh, matter. And he argues that even abstract art or music or architecture uh, show us something about the world, uh, even if only in basic patterns, uh, even only if uh, the exploration of uh, feeling and emotion, uh, and so on. So in any case, as you pointed out, central to Gadamer's aesthetic is the notion that artwork is a bearer of truth, or can be. And art shouldn't then be understood uh, primarily uh, as propaganda or uh, Oftentimes, a, a kind of realist aesthetic uh, is one that has uh, tried to say we, we judge it only as an imitation or uh, the, the moral or value of something is the way in which it tries to persuade the reader to see things in a certain propagandish way. Yeah. yeah. Great. My next question is about language and understanding you point out that one of Gadamer's tenets is that all understanding is linguistic. But you also point out in a late interview with Gadamer, it seems he ceded that there is a non-linguistic non understanding. Can you unpack what's going on here and in doing so help us understand what Gadamer sees as the limits to language? Uh, yes. Uh, this is at the core of Gadamer's uh, hermeneutics, uh, perhaps the most cited line in Truth and Method, which is his major work, is that being that can be understood is language. So if you abbreviate that, you might want to say being is language, which would uh, put us in a kind of linguistic idealism. Uh, that, But Gadamer doesn't say that being is language. He says being that can be understood. So he is arguing that understanding is uh, entirely linguistic. 
but for the most part through reading his body of work, understanding is linguistic. So we understand in language. Uh, however, as you point out in your question, late in life he's pressed about whether there's any kind of non-linguistic understanding. And he acknowledges there that, that there is, but if you take it literally what he says in that late interview, we end up with a notion of non-linguistic linguisticality, which is a contradiction. And uh, I'll say more about this uh, later in our interview. Uh, Gadamer is struggling uh, between uh, phenomenology and dialectic, which is the subtitle of my book. Uh, he's following Heidegger's turn to language. But Heidegger began as a phenomenologist and Gadamer, I would argue, relies importantly on phenomenology. And Husserl's phenomenology uh, argued that perception and intuition were the basis for our grasp of the world. Uh, Husserl didn't have a lot to say about language. And Heidegger, for many philosophers, improved importantly on Husserl by showing the relevance of language. Uh, and I'm not disagreeing with the very significant importance of language, but uh, Gadamer has very little in his entire corpus to say either about perception or intuition. Uh, though he does acknowledge in a late essay, so not an interview, but an essay, that there is something like the pre-linguistic. Uh, but it's a notion he doesn't develop very much. The phenomenological tradition uh, has uh, made much of uh, something like the pre-linguistic or pre-conceptual. It is our confronting something in experience that we don't quite yet have a concept for, but we have a kind of grasp of it, and that it lends itself to conceptualization. Uh, so in any case, to go back to the question and Heidegger, uh, Gadamer's thesis that all understanding is linguistic, Gadamer stands by that thesis, but he stands by that thesis by ignoring the role of perception and intuition. That's one of my main criticisms of Gadamer's work. Uh, Great. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Well, and then, yeah, to kind of move into the hermeneutics, um, I want to read a quote from the book because I think it really helps set the stage for understanding what his thoughts are. So you write, quote, an uncontroversial claim of Gadamer's hermeneutics is that the task of interpretation is to come to an understanding of what a text means. A controversial claim of Gadamer's hermeneutics is that the understanding of the meaning of a text requires that one see 
how what is written can be applied in one's own life. To understand is to apply, end quote. Can you help us understand why is application so crucial for Gadamer? Yes. Um, let me just back up for a larger context. Uh, hermeneutics is the philosophy of interpretation, and there's a long tradition of it. Uh, Heidegger helps inaugurate the move that Gadamer develops further, which is to say that all experience is interpretive. So it looks to the tradition of hermeneutics, which was a matter of interpreting texts as a way to understand how we experience the world. That is how we interpret anything. So, but to your question about the importance of application. Um, so as you point out in reading my text, Gadamer is arguing that to really understand something, we have to understand how it would be applied in our life. Um, uh, the reason this is so significant uh, is that the tradition of hermeneutics out of which Heidegger and Gadamer came was one that importantly distinguished meaning from application. So, uh, I'm going to uh, invoke the, the word philology here. Uh, the tradition of hermeneutics goes all the way back to the Greeks. Uh, however, through most of the Western tradition up until the 19th century, hermeneutics was tied rather narrowly uh, to the interpretation of the sacred scriptures. So the Christian tradition, but you also find this in Judaism, the Christian and Judaic traditions uh, were focused on the sacred scriptures and questions of their interpretation and how it should be read uh, became almost immediately apparent. So there's a long tradition of discussing how one interprets the sacred scriptures. But in the 19th century, uh, following the development of modern science, there came the movement to make history a science on the model of the natural sciences. And history was very much involved in reading uh, older text, records, whatever was left uh, from earlier times. And so in the 19th century, building on the hermeneutic tradition, uh, there was an attempt to make the theory of interpretation scientific. And this attempt led to two basic principles, often referred to as canons, that interpretation is always circular. That is to say, you understand a part only in terms of the whole, uh, but you can understand the whole only in terms of the parts. So in reading a text, you can only read a part at any given moment. There is this circular process of getting a better, fuller, richer understanding of the whole, which reframes and recontextualizes our reading of any of the parts. And Gadamer endorses and accepts this canon of the circle, the hermeneutical circle. And it, it underlies then how any interpretation of something is inexhaustible, has no definite complete end, because it, you can always enrich and, and deepen it and so on. But the other canon of the philological tradition, this scientific uh, 
method for uh, reading texts. Uh, the other canon uh, was that you should always understand a text in its own context, not in our, not in my context. If I'm reading something from centuries ago, I shouldn't read uh, the Roman Latin text as though it was written yesterday. Uh, I'll make lots of mistakes in understanding it. But a corollary of this second canon of understanding things in its own context and not mine, a corollary of that was a distinction between the meaning of a text and its application. Because the thought was that you could establish a meaning of a text, but what it would mean to, what it would take to apply that, for example, in Roman times, it would require a different kind of application in my own context. So you, there was an important distinction between meaning and application in the scientific uh, hermeneutical principles, the philology of the 19th century. And Gadamer rejects that distinction uh, between meaning and application. And he argues that we should think of uh, reading a text, a piece of literature, uh, whatever it is that we're reading and trying to understand it, we should think of that as if we were the model for that should be the reading of scripture or the reading of the law. In both cases, scripture or the law uh, are somehow immediately relevant to our lives um, because as a, uh, a, as a pious believer, which in fact, by the way, Gadamer was not, but as a pious believer in the sacred scriptures, uh, those, the scripture is supposed to shape my life. And Gadamer argues that that's the way we're supposed to retext, not with the kind of neutral objectivity of the scientist that the philology of the 19th century argued for. Um, and his rejecting of that canon uh, led to the resistance to Gadamer's hermeneutics from many quarters. Yeah, and I think that that really helps um, set the context um, because a, a lot of Gadamer's critics would say he doesn't provide an adequate account of what constitutes a good interpretation. But really, uh, that critique is largely absolved when you understand the distinction between his project and the philology that you talk about, right? Yes, and uh, Gadamer, I think, in some of his writing, isn't very clear about this, but uh, as his uh, thought developed and he responded to criticisms, he came to accept a distinction between philology and his philosophical hermeneutics. Uh, he, he states quite uh, clearly that philology has its methods, and to be a good philologian, uh, you need to follow those methods. But if we really want to understand uh, the meaning of a text for me, I have to see how it's applied in my life. Right. Yeah. You make the argument that Gadamer, despite his claims otherwise, is partaking in transcendental philosophy. Can you walk us through this? Why does Gadamer say he rejects transcendental philosophy and why do you nevertheless disagree with him? Uh, 
Yeah, it's a complicated question. But to simplify, let me say that the two foremost uh, representatives or progenitors of transcendental philosophy are Immanuel Kant and Edmund Husserl. Uh, For both Kant and Husserl, uh, the ego or the subject is fundamental. Uh, Kant makes it the so-called transcendental unity of apperception, uh, which is the the I uh, that uh, any uh, claim to truth um, um, must have. It's the position of the I. And then Husserl writes a good deal about the transcendental ego. So Gadamer sees the reliance on the ego as too subjectivistic. And uh, Gadamer seems to think that transcendental philosophy as such requires the centrality of the ego or subject. And that's why he uh, resists transcendental philosophy. I argue, however, that there are a variety of ways that one can approach and work within transcendental philosophy. And one, and, uh, and there's, there are ways to do it without relo- so, such a heavy reliance on the ego or the subject. Uh, so I argue uh, further that uh, Gadamer is trying to give us, at some point he uses the language, the conditions of the possibility of coming to an understanding. What makes understanding possible? Now, when you ask about the conditions of the possibility or what makes understanding understanding, you're asking to uh, a question that's very like Kant's question, uh, who always terms things in terms of the conditions of the possibility. And in fact, at one point, Gadamer says that his account of understanding is phenomenological, and of course the founder of phenomenology was Husserl, and Gadamer uh, says that his uh, approach is, and I'm quoting him, quasi-transcendental. <laughs> and I, I'm basically arguing that he's cheating a bit. That is to say, he rejects transcendental philosophy, but he nonetheless ends up having to affirm that his own position is quasi-transcendental. So uh, this may not be uh, such an important um, uh, criticism of mine against uh, Gadamer, but you know I'm arguing that his quasi-transcendental is in fact just a, another way of doing transcendental philosophy. Now, why is transcendental philosophy a kind of important question? It's it's related to the question about what is philosophy uh, offering us. If anything, that is to say, if we want to know about the world, isn't it the case that the sciences uh, uh, tell us about the world? What does philosophy have to offer over and above what the sciences offer? If we want to talk about the mind, there isn't neuroscience giving us the truth about the mind. And I would argue that what philosophy is, it's not an empirical science like the natural or social sciences. Uh, but that philosophy uh, asks the larger questions about how is science possible and what makes science science and so on. And these questions uh, 
importantly, are not uh, empirically scientific. They're philosophical. And a way to talk about what one's doing when one does philosophy is to embrace this tradition of transcendental philosophy. Uh, and I'm arguing that is exactly what Gadamer is doing. Great. Your final chapter shares the same name as the subtitle of the book, Between Phenomenology and Dialectic. Given that Plato and Heidegger are two thinkers immensely influential for Gadamer, one could see how Gadamer might find himself caught between these two, dialectic from Plato, phenomenology from Heidegger. Could you talk to us about your evaluation of how successful Gadamer was in reconciling these two philosophical methods? Yeah, I think that Gadamer is relatively successful, but I don't think he's entirely successful. And Gadamer himself acknowledges that by referring to his own life's work as, as you've already pointed out here, as between phenomenology and dialectic. That is, he doesn't collapse the two or identify the two. He sees a tension between the two, and he positions himself between. And so he doesn't he doesn't pretend to have uh, reconciled them entirely. Uh, I would argue that uh, his reconciliation. Uh, in important ways, follows Heidegger. Uh, that is to say, Heidegger begun, begins phenomenologically. Uh, Heidegger breaks with Husserl in some important ways, but he leans on Husserl's phenomenology in his early work. Uh, and then uh, in his later work, Heidegger makes this linguistic turn uh, in which Die Sprache spricht, language speaks. Uh, Gadamer follows Heidegger's linguistic turn, and in fact, he tells the reader that he sees his own work as leading the reader to the later Heidegger. Uh, so that having been said, uh, I, I find, as I've already mentioned, phenomenology relies importantly on the pre-conceptual or pre-linguistic uh, on our perception and our direct contact with things. And that direct contact isn't uh, immediately or isn't necessarily always linguistic. And uh, as I've already said, Gadamer uh, ignores perception and intuition and uh, argues that, you know, all understanding is linguistic. let me put this in a slightly larger context. Gadamer tells us uh, in a number of places that he's a Platonist. And he likes uh, to rely on Plato uh, very often in his work for a whole variety of things. Uh, and importantly, he likes to point out uh, that in the Phaedo, Socrates says uh, that he was stymied in trying to find a way to think about things. And he then, he said, uh, took a second sailing, uh, which was to follow the Logos. So Socrates presents himself as a follower of Logos. Uh, Gadamer reads Logos as language, which I think is appropriate. Uh, 
And he places himself with Plato as language being the way to truth. I argue in the book, however, that Plato distinguishes between uh, the noetic, uh, between nous, or what, what one might translate as intuition, our direct contact with things. Plato acknowledges the difference between uh, that direct contact with things and our language about it. And uh, I argue that Gadamer too much ignores what already is in Plato, this difference between uh, our noetic grasp of things and our linguistic grasp of things, uh, that he too much ignores that. Um, So in that way, uh, Gadamer is not adequate to Plato, that, and, that, and neither is he adequate, I argue, to phenomenology. Phenomenology shares with Plato uh, the important rule for what Plato calls nous. And um, Gadamer wants to focus simply on language uh, and too much ignores the other. So that is uh, my, my major criticism of Gadamer, however much there, I think there's much to learn and um, and gain from appreciating Gadamer's hermeneutics. Thanks. Yeah. Well, a final question we like to ask is: Do you have any new books that will come out soon, or any other projects that you're working on? Yeah, I have no new books uh, out coming out at the moment. Uh, I've recently published a second and significantly revised edition of the Cambridge Companion to Gadamer. So that's an edited volume that recently came out. Uh, I'm currently working on a small project concerning Heidegger's being in time. And I'm considering a larger project uh, that uh, will uh, deal with Heidegger's influence on a very brilliant group of students in his early days. Heidegger, before he took Husserl's chair in Freiburg, uh, was a a kind of assistant professor in Marburg, and he lectured a good bit on the Greeks and included among his hearers, his students, were Hannah Arendt, Leo Strauss, uh, Hans-Geir Gadamer, Hans Jonas, uh, Jacob Klein, uh, and others. And almost every one of these people that I've mentioned, these philosophers that I've mentioned, became important philosophers in their own right. They've all, uh, the, the Greek philosophy is somehow important and helped shape their thinking. They all would say they disagreed with Heidegger's reading of the Greeks. But at the same time, they all say that they never would have learned to read the Greeks without Heidegger. So Heidegger was very important and influential. And I want to explore why and how these important philosophers uh, who had uh, sat at the feet of Heidegger, how and why they came to disagree with Heidegger interpretation of the Greeks. So that's a project I'm working on. Well, thank you so much time uh, for your time and coming on the show, Robert. Well, I'm very happy to to, uh, to be with you. Uh, 
and to be able to discuss uh, my book. Thank you.